Jazz Jewel Show podcast. Today on the pod, the province slashes international student numbers. Where would be enough? And shunning the computer age is Chris of writing you can't come back. We speak to a California lawmaker who's in charge and wants DC to follow. And suits versus the artist. How does a movie get made and then never released? We look at the behind the scenes battle in Hollywood to get Wiley Coyote versus Acme to your multiplex. That's all next on the Jazz Joe Hall Show podcast. Today, we learned former Prime Minister Brian Mulroney will be given a state funeral. Mr. Mulroney died yesterday in Florida at the age of 84. His daughter, Caroline, said he died peacefully uh, and surrounded by family. Now, Mr. Mulroney served as this country's 18th Prime Minister, leading the nation from 1984 to 1993. Mr. Mulroney would go on to build a political career marked by his leadership and guiding a fractious coalition of Western Conservatives, Red Tories, and Quebec Nationalists. Uh, His coalition, made of old centrist Progressive Conservative Party, uh, left a legacy of securing the original NAFTA trade deal with the U.S. and Mexico, as well as passing the goods and services tax uh, into law. He was also commended for his strong opposition to apartheid uh, in South Africa, helping to lead the global sanctions that brought that regime to an end as well. And he's also commended for his environmental achievements, including the acid rain reductions and Canadian environmental Environmental Protection Act. Today, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau and Opposition Leader Pierre Pauly have spoke about Mr. Mulroney's commitment to Canada. The idea of service and devotion to country uh, ran through everything he did. The stick handled very well the relationship with the United States. Even as he was moving forward and signing a historic economic free trade agreement, he was also very, very firm in fighting against acid rain and fighting for a cleaner environment. He stood firmly on the side of freedom and against communism in the Cold War. Mr. Mulroney made many friends during his time in politics and in business. One of those friends is Gordon Campbell. Mr. Campbell has served as the 35th Mayor of Vancouver, the 34th Premier of British Columbia, and served as Canada's High Commissioner to the United Kingdom. He joins us now. Gordon, thank you for your time today. Great to be with you. Thanks, Jazz. Uh, your thoughts on the life uh, and times of Brian Mulroney. Uh, you spent a lot of time with him. I recall going to an event, I think it was a couple of years ago, you were at a, on a panel with Mr. Mulroney. You knew him well. What goes through your mind today when you think of our former prime minister? Well, honestly, the first thing that went through my mind is uh, that we have to remember how much his family made a difference to him, right? Gave him the, the strength and the support to, and love to carry on in his tasks. And I think that we should always remember quotes, political quotes, families, when these things happened. I think Prime Minister Mulroney had left a, an indelible mark on Canada. I think he was an incredible leader who stood up for things that he believed in and, frankly, made lots of decisions uh, that have had a very positive effect on Canadians over the last a number of years since he was Prime Minister. Uh when you say he uh, you know, brought many changes and had a huge impact on Canada, free trade with the United States is the yeah. obvious one, the Acid Rain Treaty, uh, tough decisions like yeah. the GST, um, apartheid, uh, and not all of them um, you know, were, were, were going to be easy. Uh, is there one that you particularly admired, be, whether it was because he, he took a chance or took a risk uh, that you think had, had profound impact on Canada? I think free trade was a, a hugely important cornerstone decision to the economic future of Canada when it was made. It had been a, you know, frankly, it had been a political back and forth for a long, long time. People were afraid to touch it. Uh, you know, at one point, the Liberals were for free trade. Another point, the Conservatives were for free trade. Finally, uh, Prime Minister Mulroney said, this is what's the right thing to do for the country. And you'll recall, everyone I'm sure will recall, there was a very significant election around that. And then it's not just saying we're going to do it in Canada. We have to remember you have to have an agreement with the United States and subsequently with Mexico that opens up economic opportunities for everyone in Canada across the board without exception. And I think that that has been, it was a generational and transformational decision for the country, its economy and our future. I also think, you know, one of the things about Prime Minister Mulroney that that I'm reminded of is You know, sometimes the best decisions, the best public policy decisions are the toughest political decisions. And he was willing to, you know, to go the distance for the things that he believed were really important. I think apartheid was something that we often 
can forget about in, in Canada, but I actually am on the board of directors of a company in South Africa, and I know that people there still hold them in high regard. And I can tell you that when the Brexit debate was going on in the United Kingdom, and I was Canada's high commissioner to the United Kingdom, the best speech I heard about Brexit and the impacts it would have on people and ordinary people's lives, as well as on the geopolitical sort of structure, uh, was made by Brian Mulroney in the House of Lords. He just did a great job with that. And it reminded us of, you know, the public policy sort of strength that he had and commitments that he had. So I think we were lucky he was there. I think that he did a very good job as prime minister. And as, as even former prime minister Gretchen said, they may have agreed, but he always had Canada in mind. And that's what's important, I think, in those, those jobs of leadership. Did you call him or, or chat with him for advice? Uh, uh, not necessarily just when you're in office, but just privately, because you're, like you say, you're on boards, uh, always tough decisions to make. Did yeah. you rely on him occasionally for just advice? Actually, the, I, I, when I was elected as the leader of the BC Liberal Party back in 1990, I guess it was 93, mm-hmm. um, I went and I talked with both prime and former Prime Minister Trudeau and former Prime Minister Mulroney, because I thought it was important to have an understanding of what they saw as uh, you know potential for the future of the country. And also, I wanted to have a good, better understanding of how British Columbia could work uh, with Canada and with Quebec. And both of them were very gracious. Both of them were willing to, to share their thoughts. And, you know, sometimes when you get out of politics, sometimes it's, it's possible for people to raise themselves and raise their game. And I, I, they were very helpful to me. And Prime Minister Mulroney, particularly on a number of occasions, uh, you know, I would discuss some of the issues that we were facing uh, in the province, but in the country. You know, I always thought that British, I, as a premier, I, my job was to try and do the best I could for British Columbia, do the best to do the best you can for British Columbia, you've got to think about Canada as well, because you need to make true partnerships with the federal institutions as you move ahead. You raise a very good point in regards to partnerships and, and alliances. You know, when I look at the upheaval of the 1960s from the civil rights movement or the assassination of Martin Luther King or JFK, the oil embargo of the 1970s, there was tremendous upheaval as baby boomers came of age. But when I think of Mr. Mulroney, and his leadership in the 1980s, along with Margaret Thatcher and Ronald Reagan. I mean, he built great relationships, uh, which you may not agree with everybody's, any politician's politics sometimes, but I would generally say that era led to greater economic growth then and just as they left. I mean, they, they, they left good work behind them that allowed us to move forward in so many different industries right. and broadly as a society. Yeah, no, I think that's, I think that's, uh, that's correct. And you know, I think the, the one thing that we have to remember is, you know, political decisions are often, they often get in the way of doing what makes sense. And I think it, it takes real leadership that Mulroney showed in terms of getting to that point. But the other thing is, you know, it's the relationships you build up that allow those, those decisions to bear real fruit. So the Canada-U.S. relationship was probably never better than when Mulroney was the prime minister. I think the the work that he did with with uh, Ronald Reagan was significant for Canada, and it's you know it's they can pick up the phone and talk to one another about things you know what's going on, and it's although this is not quite the same thing. When I was premier, I, one of the things that we wanted to do in British Columbia was make sure that our senior staff members, our senior political leaders and cabinet members, were talking with their their counterparts, talking about you know what's going on and how does it work and how do we do better, bringing people together. When I was uh, the mayor of Vancouver, I, I did, created the city caucuses, which said to all, all, you know, all people elected for Vancouver, you're serving the same people. So let's look for areas we have common interests and common ground we can move forward with. And Mulroney did that on the international stage. I think probably in a way that lots of Canadians don't notice, but he was, he was a true Canadian leader, and he carried Canadian values with him into those international meetings. He stood for Canadian values. He stood for Canadian values. And when he was really, frankly, one of the leaders of the anti-apartheid movement internationally, and he was seen as a true spokesman, I think, of Canada on the international stage. He was he was substantial and substantive on the international stage, which was good for Canada. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, I think back to his time and in many ways, I think back uh, to your time as, as premier of this province. 
And then I think of politics of today, and I, I, having been a former MLA, but as someone who's covered it from the other side as a reporter as well, do you think a, yeah. a Brian Mulroney could have succeeded in today's polarized politics? Yes, I do. Because he was willing to, you know, I think one of the challenges in politics today is too many people are trying to be too much to too many people. You've got to stand for something. You have to know what you're willing to lose for as well as what you want to win to do. And I think that Brian Mulroney was showed time and again that he was willing to stand for something he, you know, he was willing to lose for. He thought free trade was something that was important to Canada. He thought it was important to all of the provinces, and he stood for it. And he could have lost. You know, people forget that that free trade debate was a very, you know, hard-fought debate. And he stood for it, and he believed in it, and he was willing to lose for it because he thought it was so important. I think he did the same thing with GST. He, he stood up and said, this is the best economic mo- uh, movement, uh, taxation policy that we can have in the country. Let's go and do it. And any time he changed that, there's significant uh, issues that, are, that arise. So I think, yeah, I think he would have he been there today. I think he would have been a strong leader today, just as he was a strong leader before. And I think sometimes it's a good idea for today's leaders to look back on those, those leaders and say, what can we learn? Regardless of party, what do you learn about how you can move all of us together forward? And I think Mulroney would be, would be fine in that, uh, that, in that way. Gordon, I really appreciate your time today uh, for myself and for our audience. Uh, I hope, I know you're not retired because you're always a busy guy, always staying busy, but it's really good to hear your voice. Thank you so much for your time today. Thanks, Jazz. Good to talk to you. Well, there's lots of questions being asked of the government when it comes to 2026 FIFA World Cup. As you all know, uh, the original budget in June of 2022 was between 240 and $260 million. Now, those questions are being asked for a couple of reasons. One, uh, that budget was for five games. And as you know, we now have seven games, according to FIFA. Uh, that budget was also announced prior to inflation fluctuating the way it has. And that number was provided... Uh, prior to Toronto's new numbers. Toronto now says their $300 million budget for five games for FIFA will be $380 million. So it's gone up by about $80 million uh, from the original budget of uh, 300 We brought up some of these issues with Lana Popham in regards to the specific number we can expect from the government. Take a listen to the Minister of Tourism, who spoke to us just yesterday. We've got a lot of planning that we have to do. And But right now, we're trying to uh, tie down some of those numbers. So with two extra games, it means that there's extra costs, for example, security. But um, there's also more economic benefit. So we are literally running those numbers right now. They're literally literally running those numbers right now. The minister did say, hopefully in a week or two, uh, they can give us a better number for those uh, uh, for those games. Joining me now to talk a little bit about uh, the financing uh, for the 2026 World Cup here in Vancouver and what we can expect is Peter Millibar. He's BC United's finance critic and he's an MLA for Kamloops, uh, Kamloops North Thompson. Peter, thank you for joining us. Absolutely. Thanks for having me on, Jess. So, uh, first and foremost, uh, the budget uh, for BC's budget that just just announced a couple weeks ago. uh, Correct me if I'm wrong here. There is no line that says FIFA World Cup, here's the budget. Right now, it's all contingencies? Well, that's what we're led to believe. And and let's be clear, this isn't about should we or should we not have FIFA. We have FIFA. The games are coming. It's great to see that we have seven games and and it's going to be a spectacular event. This has nothing to do with that. It's about the lack of transparency of the government. And so in the budget book on page 61, uh, they list off the various contingencies they have in each year. And this year, they have money set aside designated for Clean BC, which is one of the excuses the minister has used. They have money set aside for wildfires and other things that might pop up in a year, as they always would, floods and stuff like that. It's next year where it gets interesting, and that's where they have a brand new line item for contingencies. It has no money in this year. It has a billion dollars for next year, and it has $2 billion in the following year. And all those other things still have money in their line items. And the only descriptor they have is FIFA. And so that's why we've been saying as an opposition, look, you're telling us it's not $3 billion, but the only thing you have in the budget that's tied to FIFA is for $3 billion. Just tell us what it is. And if you have to update it for a bit of security costs, we can understand that. We're grown-ups. We can understand that in a few months. But 
Whether you have one game, five games, or seven games, you need to improve BC Place. You need to put in natural grass. You need to build the VIP suites and, and all of those types of things. All of that has to get built, whether you have seven games, five games, or one game. And so how they can't give us a price tag on that at this point is what's really making us scratch our heads. So for, the, for those who don't obviously follow um, budget line items like, like you would, the contingency funding, so l- let me use this as an example. Let's just say uh, the, the government had promised to build, let's say, a, a, a hospital in Maple Ridge. In that budget, you would find somewhere Maple Ridge Hospital and it would have a line item saying, okay, this is what we plan to spend this year, and this is what we plan to spend the second year and the third year. You get a sense of what that budget is. With FIFA being put into contingencies, that means it's just thrown in there with everything else, as you're saying, with forest fires, but there's no exact descriptor in regards to what we're going to see. Well, it, yes, but it, in this case, it's not being thrown in with the forest fire contingency fund. It's being thrown in in its own brand new never seen before a contingency line item and the only descriptor we have for it of any any type of depth it says fifa um and so we don't know what the heck that means because the minister has said it, it also involves all those other things but all those other things are in this year's contingencies and in different areas so again it, there's no clarity and that's what we're really trying to seek is is again we know we have the games uh we know seven are coming but we also know significant work has to be done to BC Place and, and all these other types of things for the bid. But they haven't released the bid book, so we don't know what they did to sweeten the pot to get the games in the first place. And all of that has to happen. And they, they sweeten that pot not knowing whether they've, how many games they would have. So that work has to happen. Like they say, whether we have seven games or whether we had five games or two games or three games, whatever number of games you want to put on it. So we can we can debate the the economic benefits or not of having seven games versus five games and, and all of that stuff. But, but that's what the minister is trying to deflect over to. We're not asking questions about that. We're simply asking, what have you committed us to for the capital cost side, especially of, of all the special uh, you know, reception areas and everything else that has to be built uh, for these games? The minister has talked about having to put elevators in BC Place, uh, of, you know, a 40-year-old concrete building. Uh, what is that going to cost and how many elevators are they talking about? Um, that type of thing, I think that it's reasonable for the public to say, well, to build those elevators, you better get started on the work pretty fast. What do you mean how much those are going to cost? Mm-hmm. And, and, and you know, there's always that, uh, you know, people may not like it, and I understand why. I mean, why are we improving the suites at BC Place? They're probably just fine for a Lions game and a Whitecaps game. Do we have to spend all that for a bunch of fat cats from FIFA? Uh, and, and uh, you know, dignitaries. There's, have you heard anything in regards to uh, a, some sort of tunnel, whether it's permanent or temporary, I don't know, that connects the Park Hotel to BC Place and any sense of what that would look like, whether it's a permanent structure, which tells me it'd be very expensive, or if it's temporary? Well, again, we've, I've heard rumors of it, but we've not seen anything committed to because this government, unlike Seattle and other jurisdictions, hasn't released uh, their bid document of what they committed to FISA they would do. The irony of this is, you know, at least when we went after the Olympics, uh, then BC Liberals, now BC United, we're very upfront with people and said, we are building a Canada line for the Olympics and, and for use afterwards. We are building improvements on the Sea to Sky Highway. Oh, by the way, we need to redo the roof at BC Place Stadium and we have to build a convention center. Now, you could have agreed or disagreed with those projects. Ironically, the NDPA disagreed with all of them. They will now use all of those facilities for the FIFA bid. Um, but at least people knew what was being built, what was being committed to, and had a ballpark of the cost. And, and that is really what we're saying, is if these other jurisdictions can at least give a ballpark and regular updates as costs escalate, uh, at least they're getting those updates. We're totally in the dark. The only thing we can find in the budget at this point is $3 billion. Uh, after Premier Horgan said that there was a FIFA wanted a blank check, and, and the government saying, just trust us, we're not spending all that money. Well, then tell us how much that is you're spending. Is it $700 million? Is it $200 million? We don't know. Peter, uh, well, I look forward to hearing from Lana Popham and also look forward to chatting with you in a couple of weeks when uh, hopefully those numbers, those next, level, next number, <laughs> level of numbers are announced because there could be more after that. You never know. Peter, thank you so much for your time. Great. Thank you. Anytime, Jess. The politics of That was begins right now. 
Joining me now is Global BC's Legislative Bureau Chief, Keith Baldry. Hello, Keith. Hey, Josh. Lots to talk about, uh, and usually with week that was, we, we look at the things that have transpired over the, the, the earlier part of the week, but let's start with something that was announced actually today, just a couple of hours ago. Health Minister Adrian Dix uh, said that the Ministry of Health has established a nurse-to-patient ratios that will be used in hospitals across the province to improve workload standards, millions of dollars being poured into it. Essentially, uh, there would be six new minimum nurse-to-patient ratios, general, medical, and surgical inpatients, one nurse to four patients, uh, Palliative care, one nurse to three patients. Focus care, one nurse to three patients as well. Uh, one nurse to two patients when it comes to high acuity step down. Nursing and then intensive care, one nurse to one patient. Here is Health Minister Adrian Dix making that announcement just a couple of hours ago. We're announcing today we've established six minimum nurse to patient ratios in hospital units, which will be supported by $239 million investment to recruit, return and retain nurses. What this means for nurses and patients is that there must always be a minimum number of nurses to patient. For example, medical and surgical units in BC will require one nurse to four patients 24-7. This is the only place in the world, once this is implemented, where this will be the case. Keith, it sounds quite significant and the dollars are, are certainly significant in regards to what Mr. Dix announced today. What's your, what are your thoughts? Yeah, this, is, this matches the overhaul of the doctor's payment uh, uh, system that was announced last year. So this is a this is a real uh, major step. I think um, it's been a long an issue of not only uh, attracting nurses but retaining them in a the system that can literally have them worked off their feet. So now with the again part of the presentation news conference, this is going to go a long way. Hopefully to not only attract nurses to come work in B.C., because it's the first jurisdiction in Canada to have these nurse ratios, um, but to stay in the system once they get here and not leave. So um, a lot of stats have provided today of the significant number of nurses that have been hired the last year, a number of them are internationally trained. And I think having nurse ratios like this broken down by, as you say, six categories is sort of a, a groundbreaking move. Uh, again, no one in Canada has done this, and it's uh, going to be interesting. But already, no sooner Mr. Dix made that announcement, the Hospital Employees Union issued their news release saying, what about us? What about our care aides? What about our members? Because it wasn't just the... the um, the ratios announced today, there was also some more meat on the bone put on some of these um, signing bonuses that nurses are now going to be offered if they want to go, if they can go to the north or remote areas, up to $30,000 signing bonus for the north, up to $20,000 signing bonus for rural and remote communities, up to $15,000 if they join what's called the Go Health uh, program, which is nurses who travel around the province. So this is a, a commitment for at least two years. So they, HEU is now looking for something like this as well. And frankly, I wouldn't be surprised if they get this in some shape or form come the next contract talks. Can we afford this? Well, I mean, um, I would say in healthcare, you can always argue, can we afford not to do something, particularly when it comes to attracting medical professionals? Um, can it fit within the overall fiscal picture? We're running an $8 billion deficit in the coming year. Um, so you can question whether a lot of things can be afforded. But I think a lot of people agree that when it comes to funding something, healthcare is probably the most precious thing. Yeah, and I think that that's for, for whatever political background you come from. I think we all agree we want a strong public healthcare system. I just remind myself in 2016, the NDP were handed a $2.8 billion surplus and we're heading towards an $8 billion deficit. Somewhere along the way, there's going to be somebody going, wait a minute here, can we continue to f- afford all of this? And I would love to see more nurses hired, as many as we need for our system. Well, the, but it's the, a- trick, the trick for any government right now is to increase revenue somewhere without increasing people's taxes. Yeah. That's the challenge. And that means getting a lot of natural resource revenue into the coffers. Yeah. All right, well, let's, let's move to our next issue, and that is, of course, the, the BC Conservative Party. Anytime a new party uh, starts up or starts getting attention, they get uh, new candidates that are announced, and generally some of these candidates are, I would describe as sometimes lower profile, some of them actually can be quite trouble for the party when they dig into their background a little bit, but uh, the couple of uh, uh, candidates that the BC Conservatives have announced, uh, I would describe as solid candidates, certainly on paper from what I can tell. One of them was announced today, uh, Aliyah Warbus, uh, who is with the Stolo uh, Territory, uh, she's also the daughter of former uh, left hand Governor of British Columbia, Stephen uh, Point. Uh, at the same time, also, we learn that Amelia Boltby, who is a city councillor in Penticton, will also be running for the BC Conservative. Uh, she's uh, born and raised in in Penticton, elected city council in 2022. She also uh, attended UBC Law School. Uh, pretty solid candidates there. 
Yeah, and in writings that the Conservatives can win. Um, most definitely Chilliwack, uh, Cultus Lake, not usually uh, is held by the NDP right now. First time they'd ever won that seat and won basically on a, on a split with uh, a controversial Liberal candidate, Laurie Thornness, and also a strong independent candidate. It allowed the NDP to win with you know 37% of the, of the vote or so. Uh, Penticton, uh, NDP's only won one, there once, and that was just in 91. Again, on a vote split. That's traditionally a, a fairly conservative area of the province. So the Liberal Dan Ashton is leaving. He's not seeking re-election. So the United uh, Party does not have the incumbency advantage, which is really needed in some of these tight three-way races. So, yeah, these two names that just emerged uh, in the last couple of days are significant. I mean, these are solid candidates, and the Conservatives are going to be very competitive in that those ridings, if not the riding, if not the party to beat. Depending on the polls, BC Conservatives hovering around you know mid uh, you know mid twenties, about twenty five, twenty three, depending on what poll you look at. Uh, BC United anywhere from fifteen to twenty points, depending on what poll you look at. If these numbers stick two or three months from now, or in and around the end of the legislative session, what's this mean going into summer and then, of course, a fall election? Well, I mean, there's going to be a lot of people jumping out of windows on one side of the political <laughs> spectrum because uh, that's we just got a vote analysis from um, one of our uh, polling um, uh, specialists uh, who do aggregate polling, 338, I think it's called. That right now, based on some of these um, polling, the NDP would be looking at like an 80 to 90 seat house. And BC United with less than 10, and the Conservatives hovering around, you know, 10 to 15. So right now it's looking like a NDP wipeout, but there's eight months to go before the vote. But you know, it's um, it's a unique situation with the Conservatives seem to have a momentum they've never had before in terms of generating headlines. Uh, they've got two members in the House; they haven't had that in decades. Uh, so they have a presence in the legislature. They, they're ahead of the United, which is losing members rapidly. Ten members now not seeking re-election in that caucus, which is a huge number. Particularly, as again, in tight three-way races, the incumbent advantages can be significant, and they've lost ten advantages because of those uh, looming retirements. Well, one man who certainly knows of, of uh, winning big, that's Gordon Campbell in 2001, I think 77 of 79 seats. The then BC Liberals won. Mr. Campbell was on this show. Uh, at 3 o'clock today, talking about the legacy of Brian Mulroney, our 18th Prime Minister, who passed away yesterday at the age of 84. One of the things I asked uh, uh, Premier, former Premier Campbell was, would Brian Mulroney, who was, you know, Bill Bridges from uh, disenfranchised Westerners to Quebec nationalists to traditional progressive conservatives in central Canada, would a person like that, uh, would a person like Mr. Mulroney succeed in an era of polarized politics? Take a listen to Mr. Campbell's response. Yes. I do. You know, I think one of the challenges in politics today is too many people are trying to be too much to too many people. You've got to stand for something. You have to know what you're willing to lose for as well as what you want to win to do. And I think that Brian Mulroney was showed time and again that he was willing to stand for something he, you know, he was willing to lose for. He thought free trade was something that was important to Canada. He thought it was important to all of the provinces and he stood for it and he could have lost. You know, people forget that that free trade debate was a very, you know, hard-fought debate, and he stood for it, and he believed in it, and he was willing to lose for it. Uh, your thoughts, Keith? I mean, you've you've met so many politicians locally and nationally, and, and even internationally. I mean, some would argue it's very hard to, you know, find that quality of leadership this day and age. Well, the point, Mr. Campbell's point about you have to stick with it, it's becoming increasingly hard, I think, for governments to do that. Uh, particularly in the wake of uh, sort of the balkanization of the political system, uh, everyone in sort of these little silos, um, less coalition politics, more populism on both the left and the right. Um, you know, it was interesting. Gordon Campbell was driven from office for because of the HST. You know, he couldn't stick with that. Uh, Gordon or Brian Mulroney, at the end of his term, the big issue wasn't free trade; it was the GST which he was roundly torched for. Ironically, as he pointed out in an interview about five years ago, for all the grief he was given and attacks he was given, he noted with more, quite a bit of irony that GST remains on the books and shows no signs of disappearing no matter who's forming government. So I think it's harder to stick to some positions that can be unpopular. 
um, because the noise levels are, I think, higher than they have been in the past with the advent of social media. Now the looming specter of artificial intelligence is just going to make political discourse much more difficult in this country. Uh, we are speaking to Keith Baldry, Global BC's Legislative Bureau Chief. It's part of our the week that was in BC politics. Keith, I just want to go back uh, just for a moment uh, in regards to BC Conservative candidates and um, and BC United itself, at the rate this is going, I mean, I is there any sort of reasoning that is there anybody out there who believes that somehow that both of these leaders who represent a free enterprise perspective to the world under Mr. Rustad and Mr. Falcon that they could actually get back together and uh, and and put that coalition back together again? No, <laughs> no, I've talked to Rustad. Um, uh, both seem to say, one day they say, well, sure, we can always talk. The next day they dismiss it out of hand. Rustad said, told, he was told to, you know what, when he sent an emissary. Now he says, I can't repeat it on radio or TV, what they told me to do. Uh, I talked to him this week uh, and pointed out to him, and we, did, we did a story on him on Global on his Surrey School idea, which was to get rid of portals and put more kids and have larger classrooms, which didn't go over well with a lot of people. But nevertheless, he got some airtime. That didn't go over well with some BC United folks, and he kind of enjoyed that. So there's a lot of egos involved in this, and there's not a lot of time left between now and then. And again, every day these, these parties are announcing new candidates. So if Rustad were to join up with BC United, what does he, what does he tell the two candidates we just talked about? Uh, who have been recruited and have been signing the papers. And what, is, what would Falcon tell his candidates in the writings that BC United has uh, candidates in and sort of the BC Conservatives? So I think the, the, it's, we're too far down the trail of, not, of candidates being appointed or nominated uh, to suddenly turn around and tell these people they can't run again because we've decided to merge parties. That, that just is not going to happen. You, uh, in past conversations, have sort of referenced this era, this moment, uh, with these two free enterprise parties, and and have sort of uh, you know looked back to 1991 when uh, Gordon Wilson and BC Liberals at that time took off under an old Socred party, uh, and then the NDP came into power. What's changed since then, from 1991 to to, to today, well, in regards to just Vancouver and and even even I, the island? So what's changed is the electoral map has undergone significant transformation. And in 1991, I just did a calculation on the day, 57% of the ridings were in Metro Vancouver. And I'm not, not talking the Fraser Valley, but just Metro Vancouver that ends at Maple Ridge and Surrey um, and, and Vancouver Island. Uh, in 2020, or in the upcoming election, because we're adding six more seats, 72% of the writings will be in those same two geographical regions, which, by and large, elect new Democrats, not the alternative. BC United has nothing on the island. The Greens have two. That is in danger of going down to one. Uh, come the next vote, that's going to go NDP. In Metro Vancouver, there's a number of seats being added, and I think the NDP right now is seen an analysis is going to win the lion's share of those, along with the ones they already have. So all the ridings, the majority, 72%, almost three-quarters of the ridings are in areas where the NDP is strongest, and that's a fundamental difference from 50, from 91. For years, the electoral map did not reflect the huge, growing suburban-urban population growth, because we only we only change this map every 10 years. Well, in the last, in the last number of years, since 30 years, since 91, the population has exploded in, ge- in urban and suburban areas, not rural. And that means there's more and more seats added in areas that traditionally support the New Democrats. So that's a fundamental shift from 91. Well, it's going to be fascinating to watch over the next few weeks and as we head towards Election Day on October 19th. Keith, thank you for your time. Have a great weekend. All right. Well, from the silver screen to the small screen, we explore the magic of storytelling and uncover the -the behind-the-scenes drama that keeps Hollywood spinning. Time now for your VIP pass, the glitz, glamour, and grit of the entertainment world. Roll sound. Rolling. Screen time. While Coyote vs. Acme was first announced in 2020 as a hybrid live-action animation film in which the iconic Looney Tunes character Wiley Coyote would sue the Acme Corporation for selling him so many products that failed to help him catch his nemesis, the Roadrunner. Will Forte was cast as Coyote's down-and-out lawyer, while John Cena would play as high-powered former boss. But even though Coyote vs. Acme completed production, news broke uh, last uh, November that the movie was being shelved by Warner Brothers. So how does a movie with a great premise get cancelled? Joining us now for screen time is Mark Staling, a CKNW's in-house movie expert and executive producer over there at AM730. Mark, welcome. 
Hey, good afternoon, Jess. Uh, so, another edition of Screen Time. And I usually, uh, we talk about movies that are out uh, and released, or movies that uh, are being produced. But this is a movie that isn't going to see the light of day. We might never see it. We might, we'll see. I know it's, it's an interesting situation with, uh, you know, Coyote versus Acme, which is what it's called, that Warner Brothers has put it in the, in the vault, and it might be getting deleted here in, in a matter of a couple of weeks. Uh, it's still touch and go. Warner's isn't saying too much about it. But. So this is a remake. This is a Looney Tunes remake. Well, it's it's a unique idea. It was actually originally a story from a New Yorker article in like 1990. And the premise is it's actually a great sounding premise. You know, you hear about this. It's like, oh, that's actually a cool movie. You know, Wiley Coyote, he used Acme products and they never worked for years and years and years trying mm. to, uh, you know, get the uh, the Roadrunner in the, in the cartoons. And uh, he hires a down and out kind of attorney, some billboard attorney played by Will Forte. And they sue Acme. And that's kind of the story of the movie, I guess, a little bit. Like um, uh, Who Framed Roger Rabbit in the sense okay. that it's live action mixed with animation. The coyote's animated and there's a bunch of human characters. And um, it sounded like a pretty neat concept. And it was in the works from 2018, went through all the things that usually movies, you know, go through, hoops to jump through. And then uh, Warner Brothers decided to pull it. Uh, What's the reason behind that? Well, that's the thing. It's not like there's a couple. It's not the first time that Warner Brothers Discovery, this new conglomerate, has has dumped movies before. There was a Scooby Doo movie that vanished off the face of the earth about a year and a half ago. Mm-hmm. Batgirl was a famous example. Yeah. Now, Batgirl had like really, really bad uh, numbers from test screenings. Say what you will about test screenings. You know, that's a whole other topic of discussion, I guess. But the numbers were bad on that. With this one, all the word of mouth has been good, yet they have decided because they could obtain a – and some of this we get into this f- financial talk and I, I'm a little bit lost. But a $30 million tax write down if they just shelved the movie and just essentially got rid of it, never, never to be seen again or heard again, which is a, a pretty crazy concept. Well, I guess I guess with, when a company because they've gone through um, a variety of mergers, they're carrying a huge amount of debt. The tax write-off is much more palatable to them yeah. and works in their advantage than actually creating something. That's amazing, isn't it? That you can actually kill a movie before it's even released or even produced or written, and that's an advantage to you than actually producing something like that. Yeah, it was actually scheduled to be released on July twenty-first of this past year. Past year, they pulled it, uh-huh. and the movie they replaced it with made a couple of bucks. It was a movie called Barbie that came out this summer. So they, <laughs> it was originally scheduled for the big Barbenheimer weekend, which was you know the movie story of this past summer. Um, but then they pulled it, they removed it from the release, um, and it's gone through a variety of different phases over the last several months. They actually tried to sell it, you know, hey, if, if anybody wants this, you know, give us $75 million and you can have it, whether it was uh, Netflix or Amazon, some of those other big companies, um, you know, watched it. And uh, I guess what happened in the long run, those Warner Brothers didn't get um, an offer that they thought was good enough. Um, and... Every indication based on, you know, all the information in just the last week, I know they had a financial call last week, um, that they're canceling the film. And, you know, the word is, you know, deleting the film. I don't even know what that entails. You know, it's not, what do they, burn the negative? I mean, at a certain point, it's like, what's, it's hard to believe uh, that they couldn't just throw it on streaming. Um, I just love the I love the premise. It's beautiful that Acme products just haven't worked for Wile E. Coyote. No, it's supposed to be funny. It, and it's rather unfortunate that they're actually doing this. And what I like about this also, it's just not another superhero movie. Uh, of course, it's going to rely on some technology and, and that sort of thing. But it's, it's got a super premise, an interesting premise, and that they should go ahead with something like that, which is really, really uh, unfortunate. But I guess, you know, if you think about uh, other movies, sometimes they languish for 5, 10, 15 years until somebody decides. I think Beautiful Mind was one that um, had been languishing around Hollywood for many, many years. And there's others that just don't get picked up. And then one day some producer says, I'm going to work at this. And it, it it does really well. Yeah, I think the phrase that some of us, it's called it development hell, where they get locked in some sort of, you know, quagmire of trying to make it and this and that. Um, and then, you know, eventually they, they do get released or they get canceled. The crazy thing with this with a movie with all the effects that it had I mean it was it was done it wasn't like oh they got halfway there and oh let's pull the plug no it's it's completed and you know theoretically ready for a release 
there's a little part of me that's wondering, um, I don't think this is the case, but could it be, you know, we're talking about it. People are talking about it. Is this somehow, you know, maybe a ploy where they're going to eventually, they will release it and this will somehow create some buzz and, oh, we've been holding it back, but hey, here it is, you know. Um, Disney was famous for years for their vault. They would put movies into the vault. They wouldn't be available for 20, and they'd build up, you know, anticipation. Oh, Snow White is in the vault. And then Disney would open up the vault, and they'd release it on VHS or whatever and things like that. But it sounds like this vault is uh, not a vault where they're going to open it up and, you know, release it somewhere down the line. It's one where they're just going to pull it, which is, you know— Movies are big, big endeavors, and the amount of people that worked really, really hard to make a you know a piece of art like this um, for it to be just to vanish off the face of the earth is is really sad, and it speaks to I guess the general you know the nature of the film business. It's you know a handful of companies, and you know they've got shareholders and stockholders, and they answer to them. Yeah. And, uh, it's sad. It is. And, and like I said, it's got a built-in audience. you got folks uh, like you and I who remember the Looney Tunes. you got a new generation that's going to find it interesting. Uh, but instead, a tax write-off pays off yeah. for some companies. Uh, that's where I think, I, I personally believe, you know, Hollywood, we got to get back. Hollywood has to get back to a time where you actually had artists running the place in the sense that you took chances. Like those movies of the past, The Godfather or some of those other movies, like I'm not sure those things would get made today. I really don't, uh, just yeah. based on what these corporations are looking for, you know? The, the mid-budget adult film has yeah. really faded into obscurity, and, it, and it's sad because um, that's where a lot of great movies came from. It's either giant or it's an independent movie, you yeah. know? There's, there's not a lot of middle ground, and people like us are missing out on those middle ground movies. You know, middle ground, not, not a negative word, but, you know, just good, you know, cheaper, you know, $20, 30000000 million movie. God forbid people just have a conversation and build a premise around something like that rather than special effects and all those types of things. Mark, thank you. Thanks for having me. Well, a generation of children who learned to write on screens is now going old school. Starting this year, California grade school students are required to learn cursive handwriting after the skill had fallen out of fashion in the computer age. Assembly Bill 446, which was sponsored by a former elementary school teacher by the name of Sharon Quirk Silva, was signed into law in October and requires handwriting instruction for 2.6 million Californians uh, in grade school. Joining me now to talk about uh, this bill is Sharon Quirk Silva. She is a California Democratic Estate Assemblywoman and, as I said, a former elementary school teacher who sponsored the bill. Uh, Ms. Silva, thank you for joining us today. Thank you for having me. Well, Assemblywoman, uh, a fascinating topic. Uh, I guess we should start from the beginning here. Uh, What convinced you that uh, you wanted to push this through uh, the legislature in California to make this law? What drove you to do this? Well, I am a classroom elementary school teacher by profession, teaching over years. 20 years in Fullerton. I was an elementary teacher and most often teaching the grades between one uh, first grade and fourth grade. So it uh, was always a part of the curriculum. Up until about the last 10 years, I left the classroom in 2016. So I started to see uh, that some students were learning it consistently and then other students had not been um, had the instruction at all. So it became uh, a point where I wanted to see all students learn it. Uh, what were you seeing uh, in regards to those that weren't learning it? Was it just a, you know messy writing? Why, why was this sort of a, a thing you felt that kids today still needed to learn about cursive writing? Well, one of the things with the the technology coming into the classroom, whether it's iPads or uh, phones, uh, we, we've just seen a lot more screen time over the last decade. And uh, whether you're looking back with historical documents, family lettery, letters, diaries, uh, you could see that there could easily be uh, some uh, young individuals who may be able to read these documents and may not. But even more, since I've authored the bill, and I may be more acutely aware because of the bill, I have started to see cursive, uh, in essence, become more of um, a fad in the sense of wedding and invitations, menus, 
titles on movies. Uh, and so one of my thoughts was what do students do uh, when they can't read it? So the reading part of it has been important. And then, of course, uh, writing, but just what do you do when you see titles that you can't read because they're in cursive or you get an invitation that you can't read? So that became part of uh, my interest. Is this a growing issue in your mind, the inability to read or to understand all of that in, in the United States? Uh, we have seen over 22 states in, in the United States bring back cursive, if you want to say it that way, kind of old school, new school. So there definitely is some interest in it. We've also seen some data and research that has shown the benefits of cursive handwriting from child's brain development, including memorization and fine motor skills. So I don't think it is going to come back in the sense of surpassing any of our current technology, but it certainly could be paired with it. One of the things as a classroom teacher we often were asked to do was teach small groups, whether it's reading, language arts, and what do you do with the 20 students that you're not instructing? You have 10 in a small group, you have 20 uh, working independently. This is a great practice activity uh, that students can work on. We've also found that now that it is coming back because of this law, I've heard uh, many of my uh, current educator friends are saying the students are liking it, uh, they're enjoying it, and there has been some interest by them to learn it even on their own. What advice would you want to give uh, British Columbia and Canadian lawmakers in regards to your bill and what you were able to accomplish? Uh, that it should just be a tool that... Uh, put into the language arts curriculum. Our bill uh, says that it will be introduced between grades one through six. We're not asking for mastery, meaning uh, 30 minutes a day, uh, something as specific as, as that, but that if students are introduced to it between grades one through six, uh, our expectation is they'll know how to read and write it and there, that there will be benefits, um, even in their personal history, of being able to uh, read documents from the past, but also, like I said, uh, start to look for those cursive writing signs in your neighborhood, and you're going to find them. Mm-hmm. Now, if you were back to uh, being a teacher full-time, and, and you had young kids uh, talking to a grade one or grade two class, and some child told you that cursive is too difficult, what would you say to them as a teacher? can be difficult for uh, some children, and I would uh, just encourage them to enjoy it, practice it. There's a lot of looping. There's a lot of fun that can be made with it. But, of course, in instruction, teachers need to be flexible, knowing that some students will just pick it up right away, and others, it may take more time. So just type of enjoy the instruction. We have have had those stories of, of individuals saying, I remember when my first grade teacher used to get very angry with me for not, uh, uh, you know, making my letters correct. So I think overall just uh, teachers understanding it takes more time for some students than others. Mm-hmm. Now, is it true that you were also inspired to sponsor the bill after um, a meeting with former Governor Jerry Brown, who I believe is Jesuit educated, is that is that where it all began? Yes, <laughs> it did. I was uh, uh, at a dinner with the governor that he used to do for legislators, kind of a meet and greet, and we sat next to each other. And uh, he asked what I did as you know before I got to the state assembly. I said I was an elementary teacher, and the first thing he said to me is, "You need to bring back." cursive writing. And uh, I said, well, are you going to sign the bill? He said, yes, he would. Uh, But in fact, we weren't able to get the bill through because it had to go to the education committee. At that time, the chair didn't think it was um, something he wanted to move forward. Uh, So in 2016, we've had an uh, actually 2023, we had a new chair to assembly. And so that's when we moved it forward last year. Uh, Ms. Silva, thank you so much for your time. Really appreciate the conversation and all the best to you. Thank you so much.
Goodbye now. It's over. That's all. Thank you. All right. That's a wrap. It's Friday, and this is The Wrap on The Jazz Joe Hall Show. Thank God it's... This week, we asked, was it a mistake to go ahead with the 2026 FIFA World Cup in Vancouver? And we find out what brings our rap panel to a rage when they're navigating the mean streets of Vancouver. Joining us today is our regular rap panel, Leah Halives, a TV reporter and radio host. And Sarah Daniels is a real estate agent in South Surrey, author and broadcaster as well. Leah, Sarah, welcome. What's happening, Hi, guys? Hello. Well, let's talk about the FIFA <laughs> World Cup. We found out uh, this week that the numbers that we were originally given, 240 to 260 million to host the FIFA <laughs> World Cup, was just, well, a guesstimate. Uh, looks like we're going to have to go back to the drawing board. And the minister on this show said yesterday uh, they were hoping to have new numbers out in a couple of weeks. This all comes after Toronto said their costs have ballooned from 300 million to 380 million dollars, an 80 million dollar increase for five games we of course will be hosting seven games here uh in um in vancouver leah let me go to you what do you think do you think this is a mistake because we always have this thing where we get excited about something we say we want to do it we go ahead with it (laughs) and then of course the bill comes and it's a lot more than we thought (laughs) (laughs) and then we have buyer's remorse exactly you know I think that the money could be put to better use, yes, because we do have a housing crisis. People can't afford to live here. But, I mean, I do want them to be more transparent, though. I hope they are going to come out with better numbers. But they were expected to have, like, 900,000 visitors. So I was thinking, where are they going to stay? Because ask the Swifties, because they're all panicking. And then I got to thinking, I'm like, okay, it is good for the economy, It'll be good for the economy long run. And I am a soccer football fan, so I'm excited for it to come here. But I hope this is like a one and done, right? We did the Olympics. We can do this. And then maybe 20, 30 years down the line. So we're not paying for it forever, right? So that's Sarah, what, Sarah what, do you, what do you think about this? I mean, uh, right now we're at 240 to 260. Let's just say it's 250 million. Toronto's going okay. up 80 million. Uh, we could easily be going up another 50 to 100 million. What are your thoughts on this? Well, I mean, we're going to have the Invictus Games next year too, right? Yep. I mean, but here's the True. thing is, are we are we in an international city or are we just a bunch of whiners? I mean, we whine <laughs> civil and complain. I don't have any fireworks. Where's the fireworks? We complain about everything. We get a big international event. We're going to look amazing. It's a beautiful city. Tourism money is going to come in, revitalize the local economy, especially after COVID when people haven't been traveling as much. Come on, people, let's get behind it. Everything costs more. Everything. I mean, you like, oh, like I'm going to buy this, and then you find out, like, okay, well, it's going to it's going to cost more down the line. We all know this. Nobody ever thinks these estimates are correct. If they do, they're morons. When have they ever come in under budget? When, when, when they never come in under budget? It's like honestly, it's like renovating a home. The contract gives you a price. Add twenty five percent. That's your actual price. Bingo, bango, bongo, people. Pull it together. <laughs> <laughs> wow. That's Sarah Daniels' vote for her. <laughs> October yeah, no 19th. Doubt. There you go. So here's cool. my question. Like, what I find interesting here is they're going to have to upgrade the suites uh, and the mm-hmm. elevator in Hotels. BC Place. Yes, but, but just think about BC Place for a second. <laughs> suites and elevators in a 40 year old building. Uh, they're probably uh, looking at the ramps as well because they're quite steep and it's an older building, and that's great for those in wheelchairs. We should be doing that. Uh, oh. Security costs are going to be uh, obviously, those things always go up. Uh, you've got you have to have a grass, grass. field, and the yeah. one that I find interesting, and maybe I'm making too much of this. They want some sort of a connection between the Park Hotel and BC Place. I don't know if it's a permanent thing or temporary, but they you so I, because the yeah, fat cats, connected, the though, fat cats right don't there. want to be using the same streets as us riffraff or have to get into a bus and go the way Give around. Give me a break. Nope. That's just okay. Dumb. Wait a minute. Honestly, yeah. Here's the thing with the upgrades. I got to say, as a real estate agent. They should be managing these things much like you do a condo building. You have maintenance fees. You have assessments, all that kind of stuff. They should be banking for these things regardless of whether we're having a big event down the line. There's got to be somewhere in the, in the capital budgets. You know, this is that BC Place is, is 40 years old. What are we going to do with it in the next 20 years? Why don't we do these things? Why? Well, we did. We did with the before the 2010 Olympics. We put like 600 million into it, and yeah, like, uh, and, and we upgraded it a lot. And then it, but that's the thing is that like it's like you you can move into a house and then you know it's oh it's brand new it's fine but we're now 15 14 years after you know the Olympics and you know 14 years takes its toll yeah. we should be constantly spending money on these things I know that sucks 
But homeowners know where are we going to get it from, though, Sarah? Please, where will we get it from? We have so much to deal with in the city, that right? Is true. Like that's the well, thing. The thing is, it, the, the problem is, and, and this is the problem for all of Canada. We are a huge country with a small population, and we can't be everything mm-hmm. to everybody. And and municipal, federal, and provincial governments all have to work in tandem, but we're not going to be able to fix all these problems. So here's the thing is, we're having a big international event. Let's try and enjoy it and make the most money out of it we possibly can. You know, part of the problem is these organizations, whether it's uh, the Olympic Committee or in this case FIFA, they're very particular and specific about what they want done. Like, look at the suites at at, at, uh, BC Place. They're perfectly fine, probably for rock concerts, for Whitecaps games and BC Lions games, but for some reason, they need to be upgraded for FIFA. Even the grass fields, uh, there's specific seeds we'll have to use. This should be the conversation, it should be FIFA. Because FIFA, I mean, this is, the, this is the group that picks Qatar in the summer. This is what I'm saying. Qatar used container ships to build a lot of their fields. Do you not remember that? They were container yeah. ships on the outside. Just one. So why Just are they complaining one. about BC Place? Yeah, I know. Container yeah, I mean, ships, my thing. friend. It, it, it should be a Vancouver thing. And here's the thing. Is it's getting more expensive? Guess what? We bait and switch FIFA. FIFA says this. Too bad. Are they gonna pull, they're going to pull the World Cup from Vancouver in a year. I don't think so. It's don't bother true. doing the upgrades. Do a little slap and tickle on it and call it a day. <laughs> what are they going to do? Oh, you didn't upgrade the suite so the, the way we liked it? Oh, gee. Sarah needs yeah, to be on the committee. On. You need to be on the committee, uh, That's our official <laughs> policy, slap and tickle. There you go. Topic number two today, uh, or this week, sorry, Polaris Strategic Insights uh, released their Rage Index, which explores the phenomenon of road rage, and it finds that drivers blowing through stop signs or red lights Lights is the top source of driver, driving-fueled anger in our country, country making 89% of Canadians angry uh, or annoyed. Uh, tailgaters are at 84%. Uh, or someone cuts you off, that's 84% as well. And when someone doesn't let me let you merge in, that's 74%. So I want to talk to our, our uh, rap panel and see what gets them in a rage when they're driving <laughs> uh, in Vancouver. Leah, let me start with you first. What is the number one annoyance for you? Oh, God, I hate those people that go to the very, very, very far end to merge on. They go as far as they can to merge in, and then they'll sit there until someone lets them in, and they're blocking all the traffic in their lane. I hate those people. Like, if you just merge in in the back where everybody else is merging and not be a jerk, everybody would be happy. But no, people are mad at you, and they're not going to let you in. So those people drive me insane. That is, like, my biggest, biggest pet peeve. And then also, if I let you in, how about you give me a wave, right? Nobody uh, waves yes. anymore. Uh, the thank you. So those are mine. That's right. <laughs> yes, it, I always do that. Is I'm that, always giving a thank you. Is the first one specific to Matthew, Massey Tunnel? Okay, so Massey Tunnel, yes. <laughs> oh, also God, the 91, yeah. trying to go to the loop for 99 and 20th Street in New West. There's cones down 20th, and people go to the very bottom on that left lane where the buses are supposed to go, and then at the bottom they merge in where there's no cones, and those people oh, I yeah. can easily shoot. <laughs> Shoot! Wow, Sarah, yeah, how about you? Yeah. Now you're a you're a realtor. You're out and about every day oh, meeting clients. God. Where do we start? <laughs> yeah, it's, it's basically people in the in the passing lane driving below the speed limit. <gasps> and oh, yeah. it's always I'm telling you, it's I, and I've told this to people and they said, oh, that's not true. And then they will literally phone me later and say, oh my god, it just happened to me. It's always a Toyota Corolla. It's got its left blinker on. It's it's a, it's a Toyota Corolla, and it's bronze. It's that bronze color, late 90s, early 2000s, bronze Toyota Corolla. There's a Kleenex box in the back window. How they get the Kleenex while they're driving, a mystery to me, but there is always a Kleenex box, box in the back window. And they're in the passing lane, and they're doing 98 to, like, maybe 100 kilometers an hour, even though the speed limit is 100 to 110. Yes, people are speeding. People always speed on the highway. You're in the passing lane. Stop being smug. Stop being like, I'm I'm doing everything legally, and I can be in the passing lane because I am going to stab you. I am going to stab you because we don't have handguns in Canada, thank God. And there's a reason why. Because when I'm on the highway, I am filled with rage all the time. But I can't do anything because people still recognize me. So I can't even give people the finger.
finger. A lot of them are American too on 99, right? That's, oh, oh, yeah. That's yeah. true. Yeah. I, um, I'm the same. It's it's the slow driver. And I swear it was happened yesterday. And I think it was a Toyota, actually, Sarah. I'm telling you, Toyota, you watch. Everybody listening, Toyota Corolla, Kleenex box in the back window. I'm going to pay attention now. Attention now, partially. I, but I, but I, I would think also we we've just got to build more infrastructure too, and that's part of our problem. Oh, that massy tunnel is a classic example. Just build something everywhere. Oh Who yeah. Who has a counter flow for a bridge and for a tunnel? Like it should not exist. We no. should have throughway well, traffic, like the line. Again, let, you know this. Oh. This is in our brilliance. We replaced a three lane bridge over the over to the North Shore with a three-lane bridge for the North Shore. I mean, we spent a billion dollars because nobody wanted to ride the causeway because we might kill trees, which all got blown down in a windstorm about five years later anyhow. Instead, no, it's better to have cars idling for half an hour on either side of the bridge because that's not pollution. Good God, people! We we cancelled the 10-lane bridge, the Massey Bridge, uh, and now we've been fighting and now we're going to spend more money to build yes. tunnels with 20% less uh, less uh, less so lanes. This, this is kind of like what we were talking about with the last conversation, right? We're constantly putting band-aids on things that don't work mm-hmm. instead no. of actually going, yeah. okay, you know what? 10, Maybe 20 years down the line, right? Build exactly. a five-lane, six-lane bridge each way. Like, come on, we're going to have more people moving here. You know it. So just well, do it. But half of the problem yeah. is we get, you know, get the big bridge and then it just merges into a smaller highway. So yeah, it bottlenecks. Well, you got to yeah. do all of it, right? You got to build the bridges, but you also got to keep building SkyTrain. You got to, you yeah. got to have greater density. All of that at once is what we're well, going to need. Look at Vancouver, though. You have Oak Street and you have Highway One going into downtown. Like, does that make sense to you? You know what I mean? Oak Nothing. is like a residential road. Nothing you know? makes I mean, sense in Vancouver. The thing is, when when we were building the ninety one to East Alex Fraser East West Connector, there were stoplights at sixty four at 72nd, at Westminster Highway. I mean, we are the only place in the world that would be, let's bring a highway in to, like, speed up uh, transportation, but let's put stoplights on it. They ran out of money at the end of it. That was the Alex Fraser Bridge on the other side. They they, they, they didn't have enough money. That was so dumb. I know, I know. That was the late 80s. There you go. Ladies, we've run out of time. Thank you so much. Have yourself a wonderful weekend. Happy weekend, everybody. Happy Friday. Happy weekend. Drive home safe. listening to the Jazz Joe Hall Show podcast. Don't forget to subscribe to the show on Apple or Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can always listen to the Jazz Joe Hall Show live Monday to Friday from 3 to 6 p.m. on 980 CKNW and connect with me on Twitter at Jazz Joe Hall BC. Talk to you next time.